Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Matthew. It comes from chapter 3, verses 5 through 12, and then chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. And the word of the Lord reads this way. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Chapter 8. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and does it, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I say to you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken. Uh, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to look. Uh, you have come to us. And Father, as we celebrate Advent this year, we come recognizing that you have come in the flesh. Uh, the word is here. It is among us. And it has things for us to do. I pray that as we look at uh, what it means to be fearless and joyful, and Father, you would move our hearts serve you well. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, if, you if you look outside of your own life, or if you're kind of stuck in your own circle, but people are just out of control. It's just out of control. And I don't just mean the usual Christmas shopping rush of, you know, consideration and sacrifice and denial that you experience, you know, at the mall. Um, there's none of that. I make conscious decisions to like go well out of my way around North Fairfield Road during this entire month, um, lest it take two years to get where I need to go. Um, and I almost kill five people. So it's that kind of season. It's that kind of out of control for sure. But that's, that's not the only out of control thing that I think you might have seen. People are just generally out of control. They're shifting from foundation to foundation. The reality is, when we look at most people in this world, they have built their house upon the sand. You can see that the foundation just shifts over and over on them. As each tide comes in and out, as each wave comes in and out, it removes just a little bit more of what is holding their house up. I don't know if you've seen many snickets, an unfortunate series of events, but it's as if the house in the middle of the story is built on all sorts of stilts, on the ground, on the cliff, just anything and everything, holding it together. That's what a lot of people's lives look like. Oftentimes, though, it doesn't fall all the way over. They're able to stick another beam in there to hold it up for a minute. They're able to shift it over a little bit to keep the whole thing from falling, but it's everywhere, and I think that you have seen it. Sure, you have seen it on Facebook. No matter what kind of echo chamber you're in on there, you're going to see this all over the place. And there's about to be a whole lot more of shifting foundations in the coming weeks as they make 
New Year's resolutions to not be shifted anymore as they shift again. We see it certainly in politics from a new speaker in the House and actually, are they going to get work done? Who knows? From oil production being at an all-time high in the U.S., yet prices seem to be going higher, even though they should be going lower. Whether it's war, and pick your flavor there, because there's lots of options right now, and depending on what colors you want to have on your Facebook profile. And then, of course, elections that are looming. We don't just see it in the easy ones. Those are easy to take pot shots at in the culture. It's easy to stand here and just shoot balls and flaming arrows out that way. But what about within the church, our own ranks, maybe even our own four walls? From sermons that are man-centered, and discipleship that's oriented around just living your best life now, whether it might be just seeking whatever you are looking for for this moment to hold up whatever beam is holding up your house. Of course, it could reach all the way into its fullest extent that we see in many places now in the sexual revolution. In fact, in this revolution, you can shift your beam that holds up your house every hour. It's not even those, although those are rampant and everywhere, and if you don't have eyes to see those, I, I would encourage you to do so. But all the way down into our families. I was talking to some people this week, and this is a resounding thing that I've heard from people. But one person in particular is talking about their kids and struggling, and they just had it was a really difficult season with them. And you hear phrases like, well, just maybe if this, and you know, there's that. And of course, always ends with, you know, we tried. And you can just hear them trying to put a different Band-Aid on the family, on their past, on what the future might hold. And it always ends in, we tried. Whether this Christmas or Thanksgiving, even you're going to experience this in family difficulties based on people's emotions. They're shifting one way or another. You never know what you're going to get from them. It could be because of one bad conversation last week, last year, last decade. These things live forever. It leads to bitterness. Now, instead of it just being one bad conversation, it's about 15,000 that you've had in your head ever since that one. Could be, of course, a new girlfriend. Women always change every game. We've seen this everywhere. No offense, ladies. That's the nature of what it is for men. Men are walking straight and narrow. A lady comes in, dude bounces. Happens all the time. Of course, for that lady, was that guy any good anymore? What is her foundation going to shift to? Family difficulties of this person did this, or they didn't do that. And so now it lives forever. Or just life. I mean, marriage happens. Babies come. Houses come and go. Jobs come and go. Schools come and go. Everything is shifting all the time. It's always moving. And for many people, it's impossible to feel settled. What do I do with everything that's shifting and moving? Life turns into this nightmare funhouse. You can't walk straight or you'll fall over. You can't see where you're going because everything is reflecting everywhere. And so then the question is, in a life that isn't built on any kind of rock. A life that is shifting every day, every hour. How can they accomplish what we are supposed to accomplish? I'll remind you what that is. What is the duty which God requireth of man? The duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. How do you do that if life is shifting every hour? You know, it's interesting if you watch cops doing sobriety tests often seems pretty silly because we're looking at it from a sober point of view. But I'm pretty certain that for those who are not sober, it's not funny. Sobriety tests actually work on people who aren't sober. The line starts moving. All of a sudden, this thing that is straight is squiggly. You start to also get a little sick as you're walking that line. It's interesting that fear and grief follow these shifting things. If we're not careful, at the end of the day, when we notice everything shifting underneath of us, there is no question but fear. 
That's the only thing that's left. You don't know what will be there in your next step. It's really rather terrifying to have to go down steps backwards while you're carrying something. And most people walk through life going forward with that same difficulty. Is the step there? Where is it at? How many are left? Am I going to bump into something? Is there a corner? How far down is it? How far up is it? And disaster always accompanies the collapse of a house. So we see grief, fear, and grief. So what will be the foundation for your life? More to the point, specifically for Advent this year, what will be the foundation of a fearless life, of a joyful life? What will be the foundation of the fearlessness and the greatness of your joy this Christmas? If we are to go merrily on our way, doing good works until Jesus comes back, which is indeed the case, how can you do that on shifting sands? You can't. Easy answer. Not much of a climax, you can't. But this is the first task, realizing this, you can't. Martin Luther said once that we absolutely hate the idea of not being able to save ourselves. In fact, we will buy any recipe there is to save us so long as we can be the one to cook it. We can't do it. This is the first task, realizing this. If you can't see that, we can play the organ. You can go on out right now. This is the task. If you don't understand that, this is the end of the sermon. You have to find the end of yourself. Now, for the rest of you, I want to make a case for this. I want to make a case for where, or rather who, you can find a bedrock foundation on. So we're going to look at two things. What's the mission and who's the leader? What's the mission and who's the leader? What's the mission is an important question. There's an assumption that all the things that I listed earlier are things that we should be about generally. Or at least some people should be about it. Maybe I'm not as into war or politics, but we need people for that. I'm not into economics, but, but we need people for that. Some people should be about these things. But if I were to ask you, as I'm doing right now, make no mistake, what is your life about? What is your mission? What would you say? You go out to lunch this afternoon, you sit across from whoever you're with, and you ask them, what's your life about? What mission are you on? How would you answer? What's the mission's a pretty important question. We need to know what we're about. So what house are we going to build anyways on this bedrock once we find it? We've talked about the sand. Let's talk about the house. What mission are we on? The mission is this, overthrowing sin. The mission is overthrowing sin. Our mission, should you choose to accept it, did you catch that? That was a freebie. Is to overthrow sin. Our mission is to overthrow sin. Where do we get this from? Matthew 3, 5 through 12. Then, Jesus, uh, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. This would be John the Baptist, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What does this have to do with our mission? Well, we'll notice in our passage, people all over the region were being baptized and doing what? Confessing their sins. Confessing their sins. 
Has everybody seen the movie Inception? It's not particularly important except for just visual. You've seen the, the part where the city folds in on itself, just kind of rolls back and folds in over itself? It's an incredible visual, right? Do you want to know how to do that to somebody? I have a magic trick for you, all right? It, it really works. It's like a superpower. You need to be ready to offer a steady hand to them, to this coworker that you're going to talk to tomorrow at work when you ask them this question because you're going to see the city fold in on them. Ready? What sins have you been confessing lately? Do that to your coworker, okay? You, can, you should video them. You can put it on TikTok, whatever you want to do. Ask them that question. I'm telling you. If their head doesn't start to turn like a clock, like, what? Right? If you don't see that, just try it. Try it on any Christian, all right? You'll probably have a little bit better luck. I'm almost certain it won't be a great response still. People don't believe that they're sinners. People do not believe that they are sinners. And we'll see why in our second point today. But this test is one of the most effective I know. Look at a few different responses you might get from different people. For, for the lazy or the complacent Christian, ideally it will kickstart them again. It'll give them a boost for a fresh look at their life. They'll be like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to be about that. What, what do, what's in my life that I need to confess? And that's a grace. This is a huge grace. And I hope here at Christ the Lord, you'll find that it's standard practice. It's standard practice at our elder table. This is, this is one of the most frustrating things about letters to the elders accusing one or all of us of sin. I, I listen to these men confess sin on a weekly, almost daily basis. And once a month, we even put it on paper. <laughs> we know what we're about. You don't have to fabricate sins for us to own. All right? Just ask us. Just ask us what we're working on. We'll be glad to tell you, okay? Now, hear me. We're open to critique, to be sure, okay? But two things. One, if you have to fabricate sins for us, don't be surprised when you receive denials back. That's the nature of make-believe, okay? If you fabricate, they're not real. They probably won't land. Number two, be careful. You will be judged by the same standard of which you're judging. That happens to be the nature of judging. Be careful about that. Recognize that. But for a complacent Christian, they'll see this as grace because it's something that they're supposed to always be about. They came to him being baptized and confessing sins. So I encourage you to see the confession of sin as a grace. You just heard Pastor Jeff do it for us. It is part of our weekly liturgy. We don't come seeking forgiveness. We already have it. And so we just come and we confess and we repent. Make a practice of this. This is what we're supposed to be. This is when you go to someone and say, what have you been confessing lately? And they're able to tell you. That's amazing. That is good Christian fruit. But then you're going to ask this question to the Christian. And this is a tough one. If you get a blank face, right? If this is a big deal or difficult for them, it's not, it's not a good sign. If it's something that they're tender to but unaware of as a regular practice, that's a good sign, okay? And I, and I find that frequently among Christians. Because this is both an orthodoxy test, are they actually a Christian, and a maturity metric. They are a Christian. Where are they at in their maturity? You might think this is a little severe, but the danger is, is that there really is no other measuring stick. Scripture doesn't really offer us another measuring stick. It's not necessarily a question of how much theological information do you know. It doesn't matter how many times they've read Grudem or what parts they have memorized. It doesn't matter if they can confess to you every heresy that started from Augustine afterwards. It doesn't matter if they have all of the hymnal memorized. The metric that we're given when it comes to orthodoxy, whether or not we are a believer, is whether or not we are confessing and repenting of sins. There is no other measuring stick. Because you might ask, well, what about people confessing Jesus? And they're Christian, they confess Jesus as Lord. They go to church. They do good works. They, they even give to mission. They're even a missionary. Is that enough? We'll, we'll get to those people. 
But this is what we'll be judged by. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So when you ask that inception question, what sins have you been confessing lately? You'll get a good indicator as to where they are. Well, if you don't get the face that you want on that one question, you can double down with this. Ask them, what fruits are you bearing in repentance? I'm just telling you how to make friends and keep people, okay? That's, that's all I want for you this Christmas. What sins are you confessing? What fruits do you have that are in keeping with repentance? Verse 8. How are you walking in repentance? It's one thing for us to confess sins. That's good. That's right. For many of us, though, that's where the, the road ends. It feels good to confess sins. It's hard, but it feels good. You get to relieve the weight. So then walk it back in repentance is the difficult work. I practice this with our kids when I ask them to go make it right. Now, there's a day when I will cease that because I want to fight against you know, them earning their salvation back. But what we're trying to do is they offended somebody, they apologized, they said sorry. Now they need to walk it back in repentance. They need to make it right, restitution. Make it right, walk that back in faith. That's a simpler picture for them to just say, go make it right. For you, how are you walking in repentance? How are you making it right when you sin? We have to hear the word and do something with it, not just enough to confess. As my Old Testament class heard today, the challenge here for us is we have all these people that hear the word. They know the word. They know the things of God. But are they doing something with it? Ezekiel 33, verse 30 to 32. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, they say to one another, each to his brother, come, let's hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. So when you ask these questions to the Christian, that's why I put them in quotes, you'll find out what they are. You'll find out. And finally, our last category for the lost and dying. You won't get the blank face. You will certainly get the head twisting like Jackie Chan, what face? Like that thing, you know, you'll get that. It it will not land. They have no clue. Again, offer assistance to them if they start to fall over. That is foreign language to them. It doesn't make sense to them. They don't know what sin is. What do you mean by sin? Why do you think I sin? What is confessing sin? Is that the Catholic thing where you go sit in the closet and talk to the guy? What do I do with this? The law is there for us to help us know what sin is. And they don't know it yet. Even though it's written on their heart, even though they practice sin, even though they invent a sin, Scripture tells us, and even though they are condemned already by it. They need help seeing it. They don't know what sin is. Of course they don't think they're a sinner. You're in a unique position, Christian. What with your bedrock foundation, your walls that don't shake, your good works based on obedience to the law. This draws a stark contrast between your life and theirs based on who you serve. We need to recognize that sin is this great enemy. Sin is this great enemy. It can't just be an enigma. It can't just be a boogeyman. It's real. And Christian, up until the point of your salvation, you served it. And you were bound in chains to it. Jesus' mission and his followers will be marked by overthrowing sin. The lost and dying will not. And the danger for them is real. 
John says here for us in chapter 3, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Every time we sing, joy to the the world, the Lord has come. Every time we sing these songs of the proclamation of the coming of this baby infant Jesus to the world, we're singing condemnation. We're singing judgment on a kingdom that stands against him. Messiah has come, and he will bring judgment for those who do not repent. This is at the outset of his ministry, the forerunner to his ministry, John the Baptist saying these things. There is no question what his kingdom is about. There is no question what he has come to do. And so it turns out, what sin have you been confessing? Could be the most soul-saving question you could ask your friends. In John chapter 1, verse 29, we see the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a forebearer John was. He knows the mission. Here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's the mission. Overthrow sin. So that's what we're supposed to do. That's the house. What are we building on? The leader. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. So if Christians overthrow sin, we need to recognize that sin is not just some amorphous thing. It's not a noun in the proper sense. When we talk about sin, particularly in overthrowing it, what are we talking about? We're talking about the fruit of something. What is the something? We need to understand that sin, by definition, is acts of worship just done to the wrong God. Sin means to miss the mark. The appropriate mark would be holiness and righteousness centered on Yahweh God, right? So anything that misses the mark is sin. What are we shooting? Worship. We talked about this before. You are always shooting worship arrows, and you are going to hit whatever you are aimed at. So if you are aimed at the wrong thing, you are missing the mark, and your worship that goes out is sin. It's worship. It's acts of worship just done to the wrong God. So where does sin come from? What are we attacking then in our attempts to overthrow sin? Now, don't want to lose you here on this shift Let's go back to some some basics, all right? I'll make this as simple as I can. Who's the Bible about? God, right? Easy enough. What does the Old Testament consistently warn most against? False gods, right? False gods. The, the, The Bible, the Word of God, is about God. What's the biggest warning that you see over and over and over again in the Old Testament? False gods. Okay, so then the next question is, what is the Bible? A lot of different answers for that. Summarize it in this. Good teaching. Good teaching. It's about God. It's good teaching. What does the New Testament consistently warn most against? False teaching. False teaching. And why it is that most Christians and churches don't know, realize, or even accept that their greatest enemy on this side of eternity is false teachers I'll never know. I'll never know. I think when you think about false teachers in most cases, most of their fight against false teaching is simply saying, well, we're not false, so check. False teacher's done. We're good. Because if the greatest warning that we see over and over and over again in the New Testament is both sin and then where it comes from, false teaching then where are all the false teachers? Is it just, you know, Osteen and the other prosperity preachers that we can throw into that horde? 
Did we, did we catch them all and burn them all? Like, is it, are they gone? Is it done? Is heresy over with now? Was it just a typo then in Revelation when Jesus with, you know, fire eyes says, I know they say, you know, slanderous things about you, um, but they're actually, you know, from the synagogue of Satan. Synagogues of Satan are a thing. You should look out for those. Let me make it easy for you. If you have a mission, there are those who are against the mission. It's as if you were to watch Mission Impossible and it was rather possible. You just walk through. There are those who are against it. That's why it's impossible. That's why it's hard. Any mission that you're on is going to have opponents. And if we recognize that when we talk about what our mission is of to overthrow sin, there are those who are against you overthrowing sin. They like it. They want it. They desire it. As Romans tells us, they encourage you to do it and they worship it. How do I know this? Well, from our passage, verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He calls them broods of vipers. If you have an ESV study Bible, you can look in your notes. This is there. Vipers were well known for their subtle movements and their lethal strikes. It's not just calling them snakes. This would be akin to calling people just dogs. He means something with it. Vipers are not just your run-of-the-mill snake. They are subtle. They are careful. And they are deadly. They're not overt. They're not walking up and down the street. They hide. They wait. They bide their time. And what do they try to do? They say, well, we're we're with him. We're with Abraham. Like, we're good. I'm one of Abraham's kids, so I'm in. Well, they tried this with Jesus, too. John says, don't say that. We can do that out of rocks. Like, we can make children of Abraham out of these rocks. They tried it with Jesus too in John 8, verse 39. They answered him, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever's of God hears the words of God. And the reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. These people who, by all accounts, are good, don't know him. How do you measure that? Then you have the question of, okay, they don't know him, yet they're the teachers and the scribes and the adjudicators. What are they doing in their nine to five? What are they saying? What is the fruit of their work? What does it look like then for a brood of vipers to go out and do their job? Immediately after talking about the narrow gate and the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 15, he says this, beware of false prophets. Hey, the, the, the path is narrow and it's hard work, but that's how you enter into heaven. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Mercifully, he says this, you will recognize them by their fruits. 
So if we're supposed to bear fruits of repentance, John says, Jesus follows up, you'll recognize them by their fruits. You have to know what fruit you're looking for. And you have to call it out when you see the fruit. The two dangers for us is that we don't look for fruit in the first place, so we accept anything that comes our way because our foundation is shifting. And we need something, anything, to hold us up in this moment. So we're not looking for fruit. But then on the off chance, we happen to take a bite and we say, hey, wait a minute, this is not what you said it is. We have to say, hey, wait a minute, this is not what you said it is. Instead of just swallowing it up and moving on and hoping somebody else will do something. When we see false fruit, we know a false teacher. When we see false fruit, we know a tree that will be cut down and burnt. And we have to call it for what it is. Why? Because false fruit leads to false trees. That fruit bears seeds. And it spreads. And it grows more trees, which grows more fruit, which grows more trees. And if we're talking about the picture here, that that fruit is the worship, and that worship is coming from, it's produced from a tree, then that tree has to be cut down. We have to cut down false teachers. We have to recognize them where they are, and we have to call those things out. Because if we recognize that sin is worship, but it's just done to the wrong God, then we need to recognize that our God has come, and righteous works must be rendered to the king of the universe. False fruit comes from false trees. Good fruit comes from good trees. Good trees recognize the king of the universe is here. Matthew four seventeen. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Beginning of his ministry. This is the kingdom. Hmm, I wonder what Jesus is going to say when he comes to town. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hmm, I wonder what this rabbi is going to do. Is he going to heal people? I wonder what it means to be part of his teaching. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. From the beginning. This wasn't plan B. This isn't a different shtick. This isn't something to try to make it edgy. This is the plan. The kingdom of heaven is here. Repent of sin. The king has come, and this kingdom comes with demands. So recognize that bad worship comes from bad trees. If we're going to overthrow sin, then we overthrow those false gods. But there's some bad news in that false god thing. <laughs> the king has come, and he comes with demands, but some of us don't really like that. This isn't glad tidings. In fact, this is a rival this king that has come is, is a rival king. Now, it could be all the way to the fact where you deny that this king has come at all. We have the 20th century humanist manifesto that says this, we find insufficient evidence for belief in the existence of a supernatural. It is either meaningless or irrelevant. They're not sure because it is real, but they just said it's not real, but now they can't name it. It's either meaningless or irrelevant to the question of the survival and fulfillment of the human race. As non-theists, we begin with humans, not God, nature, not deity. We can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. And so the hymn of their republic is this, the world rolls round forever like a mill. It grounds out life and death and good and ill. It has no purpose, heart or mind or will. Or it could be the fact that he's your direct rival. Maybe you're the tree. Matthew chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. Where is he who's come, been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Herod the king ruled. He was troubled. But it wasn't just him. All Jerusalem trembled. They troubled with him. Later in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. 
You can try to deny it like the humanists. But the problem is, at the end of the day, there is no question. We all know. Herod knew it. You know it. I know it. There's a God. He's here. Something has to happen. It comes with demands. We can't just ignore it. John's clear. Chapter 1, verse 29 and 34 in in the Gospel of John. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 34, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And no, and no, the king is here. So if our mission is to overthrow sin and our leader is King Jesus, and how do we overthrow sin? Right worship. Last thing I want you to see today is recognize his rule. Recognize his rule. If you want to have a stable foundation, if you want to have a foundation that doesn't shift and shake and change, if you want to be fearless instead of afraid all the time, if you want to be joyful instead of full of grief, you need to recognize his rule. He is our good king. And what we've been talking about, whether you realize it or not, is my inception game is a doctrine that we call governance. A doctrine we call governance. It's wrapped up inside of a larger doctrine. But inside of that is three different aspects of providence. Okay, Providence is the overall one, and we're talking about one part of it. Providence overall is talking about a lot, and we're not going to get into that now. You can do that in your home groups this week, um, since we're not having that. Find some friends. Talk about providence. Inside of that, picture the globe. Some might call that the earth. If you're a flat earther, can't help you. Globe, all right? God is under it. He preserves it. We call that preservation, all right? He holds everything together. He's under it. He holds it. He's in the globe doing things. We call that concurrence. He works with men. He responds to our uh, actions. He causes actions to happen. And then overall, he's transcendent. We call this governance, which is what I've been describing today, whether you realize it or not. He is under, in, and over. He is preserving, concurring, and governing. Under, in, over is the easier way. In governance, what are we talking about? This is from uh, Wayne Grudem. He says, this third aspect of God's providence indicates that God has a purpose in all that he does in the world. And he providentially governs or directs all things in order that they accomplish his purposes. What does it mean to have a solid foundation? It means to be on the rock. It means to be in God's will. What is the thing that, what is the duty that God requires of man? To do his will. We cannot skate around God's will. It's everywhere. Things get shaky when you try to go around that which cannot be gone around. We can rest as a Christian people in the fact that God has a purpose in all that he does. And he providentially governs, directs all things in order that they accomplish his purposes. John Calvin says this, when once the light of divine providence is illumined to the believer's soul, he's relieved and set free. Not only from the extreme fear and anxiety that formerly oppressed him, but from all care For he justly shudders at the idea of chance so that he can confidently commit himself to God. You find true freedom. He's relieved and set free. And not just of fear and anxiety, but from all care. Why? Because God has a purpose for everything that he's doing. God has a purpose. Had Ben read another passage. This is an illustration of a man who gets it. 
a man who gets it, who understands who Jesus is, what the mission is, and what it looks like to be on firm foundation. We have the centurion. Verse 5, it says, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to them, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. That's what it looks like to know the mission, to know the leader, and to know what bedrock looks like. So much so that Jesus says, people will come from the east, from the west. Gentiles, he means. And they will dine with the patriarchs of the Hebrews, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And meanwhile, verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom, those Jews who say, hey, Abraham's our father, will be cast out into the outer darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's pretty intense. Sounds a little harsh. It was a little difficult, not super encouraging. But Jesus is marveling at the faith of a Gentile to say, just say the word and it will happen. You have that kind of faith. Is that the bedrock that you're on? Or do you need to see exactly where Jesus puts that strut? Make sure that it holds up exactly what we need. You want to make sure that he's using the right material, Right? You don't have to replace it in 15 years. I don't want to go through this again. Making sure that every bolt's in the right spot. Making sure that every decoration's okay in your house rather than saying, Lord, say it and it will be. Start to understand Calvin a little bit more, right? Not just from fear and anxiety, but from all care. God has a purpose. There's a plan and he's doing it. He governs the entire world. What does his governance look like? This is from Grudem as well. Just a snapshot for you in case you're wondering. We read in the Psalms, his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 103, 19. Moreover, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? Daniel 4, 35. Paul affirms that from him and through him and to him are all things, Romans eleven thirty six, and that God has put all things in subjection under his feet, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty seven. God is the one who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, 11, so that ultimately at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2, 10 through 11. It is because Paul knows that God is sovereign over all and works his purposes in every event that happens that he can declare that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purposes, Romans 8, 28. I can rest on that. I would beg you, to find this foundation and find rest. It is the only thing that does not shift. It is the only cure for fear and for grief. And so if you have a mission from this king, and he governs all, what are you afraid of? What is there to be afraid of? Why aren't you joyful? What's got you down? These are real questions that have to be answered. They're not just thought-provoking thoughts from a pulpit. These are questions that are demanded from the Scriptures. You have to answer them. 
Do you know the mission? Do you know who gave it? If you do, what are you afraid of? Why aren't you joyful? You see, Christian, we have a firm foundation. How firm a foundation, O saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, who unto the Savior for refuge have fled? In every condition and sickness and health, in poverty's veil or abounding in wealth, at home and abroad on the land, on the sea, the Lord, the Almighty, your strength ever shall be. Fear not, I am with you, O be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. And when through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. And throughout all their lifetime, my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And then when gray hair shall their temples adorn like lambs, they shall sit on my shoulders and be born. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lamb that has come to take away the sins of the world. And Father, we now rest on your shoulders. But Father, throughout our lifetime, we want to be a people that prove your sovereign, your eternal, your unchangeable love for us. And so Father, I pray that we would fear not. I pray that we would be joyful. I pray that we would recognize that we stand and we are upheld by your righteousness that was given to us in Jesus Christ and by your omnipotent, powerful hand. You govern all things. Father, if we can't rest in your will, there is nowhere to rest. So Father, call us to that. Encourage us with that. Let us speak it to each other. Let us sing it even now together as we rest on your shoulders. Father, we know you will not forsake us. Let us not forsake you. Let us not run to other gods, but Father, look for the one who can save. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.